Did you ever hear of Kong? Why, yes. Some native superstition, isn't it? A god or a spirit or something. Well, anyway, neither beast nor man. Something monstrous, all-powerful, still living, still holding that island in a grip of deadly fear. Well, every legend has a basis of truth. Welcome to Now Playing's King Kong Retrospective Series. I'm offering him adventure, fame, the thrill of a lifetime, and a long sea voyage. Well, I don't see how you can be amused by gorillas. I think they're dull. Well, this one's 60 feet tall. What do you think of him? 60 feet? That's right. This is Kong, the strongest living creature on Earth. Hosted by Stuart. I, I, I was just afraid that you might be one of those self-obsessed literary types. Mm -hmm. The Tweety Twerp with his nose in this book. Jacob. I'm on the level. No funny business. Trust me and keep your chin up. And Arnie. Here we are. Just one big happy family. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Are you sure about this? Our primates too. Listener discretion is advised. It's time to show Kong that man is king. We hope you enjoy the show. Lights, cameras, Kong. Today we're discussing Kong, Skull Island, starring Tom Hiddleston, Samuel L. Jackson, John Goodman, Brie Larson, Jing Tai, Toby Kevill, John Ortiz, Corey Hawkins, Jason Mitchell, Shea Wingham, Thomas Mann, Terry Notary, and John C. Riley. Directed by Jordan Vote Roberts. This is the now playing monster from a bygone era, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is Jacob, the host who's more beautiful than a hot dog and beer at Wrigley Field on opening day. Where does King Kong go after Peter Jackson? Such an epic indulgence of the character. We've seen this ape in every way possible. I, I just imagine Peter Jackson's doing a three part prequel, right? Well, he joked about that. That actually was in the commentary, har, har, har. And his co-screenwriter slash wife is like, yeah, no, mm -mm, <laughs> not happening. I mean, Kong's been a stop-motion puppet, man in rubber suit, man in dotted suit. And we even saw those Seldron animated cartoon musical thing. Oh. We've seen him in every <laughs> possible way. I think that is the problem. If you're going to stick to the American version of Kong, he dies. In every iteration, he dies. Except King Kong Lives, where they found a very silly reason to bring him back. But, like, that's his story. You got to go full kaiju, I guess, if you want a franchise. I mean, it's the parody of Hamlet, too, right? I mean, that whole movie, the silliness was Hamlet dies. You don't have a Hamlet where Hamlet lives at the end. Spoiler alert for that five. 500-year-old play, but how do you have Hamlet 2 if Hamlet dies? Well, you can have a 20-foot-tall puppet that takes 35 people to operate. King Kong finally realizes a lifelong dream. He went to Broadway. He's in a musical. I think he stepped on Broadway in one of the movies. Yeah, he was always meant to go there, but he actually went there 2008. First, he had to go to the Australian stage, which I got to say, a little less cool. But he starts in 2013. They're developing this musical. And no, the ape doesn't sing. The music is actually kind of hip. I was actually impressed when I saw like the people working on it were like these electronic acts like Massive Attack, Justice, The Avalanches. 
you too did turn off the dark. That didn't help. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> of which, when it moved from Australia, they were moving into that Spider-Man stage. They're like, we need a really big stage for our really big Kong puppet. But the show debuts in 2018, largely faithful to that story. Yes, we already know, except for one big change. Everything now is centered around Anne Darrow, who is still a struggling actress in Depression-era New York. But interesting twist she is now played by a black woman so it adds a new subtext when she is told by carl denham oh join me and all these people trick her and exploit her put her on camera she is actually going to identify with kong in the same way we are exploited creatures we are being used by these artists and so it adds to the love story. There's actually more nuance to why she falls for the big ape once she finally gets to Skull Island, which apparently has no native tribes. They decided not to do that racist trope. She just gets there, is posing in some vines, gets caught. The ape pops up, grabs her, breaks the camera. Carl Denham says, we need them both. And this is all on a stage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have a 20-foot-tall Kong. Everyone else is, you know, what, five, six feet tall or something like that. It was. It looked really cool. I saw footage. It looked like an actually kind of cool show. It did not win any Tonys, but it was critically well liked it's it's already closed my understanding is it's moving to japan next year i'm not going to japan to go see it but it sounds like they found a new way to tell the same old thing in a way that probably helped kong stretch his limbs do something a little bit different because yeah this is getting a little bit old now and uh, universal orlando also, summer of 2016, decides it's time to close Confrontation, update it so it looks like the Peter Jackson Kong. And it's not quite what they did in Los Angeles. It's not full motion ride with 3D screens. They do have a few animatronics of those bats and Kongs, you know, waves at you at the end <laughs> as a giant animatronic. You can stream it on YouTube. I believe he has banana breath. But by and large, the trend is they still want to do those 3D movies so that it can look like Peter Jackson's King Kong. If you're a subscriber to Netflix and you are a fan of self-flagellation, you could also watch the 2016 Kong King of the Apes cartoon. Two seasons of that set in the year 2050. In the future? Yeah, it's very environmental. The jungle has been depleted, and these two kids go out there. One is a tree hugger. One loves robots and hates mosquitoes and doesn't like nature. And so, of course, the environmentalist saves, rescues Baby Kong, helps him grow to be giant. And the other brother designs a giant metal dinosaur to attack that Kong and... And this is bad. It's not good because <laughs> it sounds amazing. It does sound like it could have been good, but the animation's weak and the characters are pretty thin and I couldn't stand the pilot. The pilot's two hours long. Maybe when Oof. it finally got into the show, but all of this setup took two hours to get through and I didn't make it through the 23 other episodes. I just wasn't feeling it. But crossovers, that's the biggest thing to do, right? That's what every artist has to do now. Doesn't matter how big of a singer you are. You got to partner with another singer. Because your star is not big enough to be on your own. And so crossovers were already happening in comics and books. There was a Tarzan versus King Kong book that came out that apparently it, it happens as an interquel. It is the original Kong that's going to fall off the Empire State Building. But before he gets to New York, he stops in Africa and fights Tarzan for a little <laughs> while. Yeah, you know. 
And then I did actually get a chance to read Kong on the Planet of the Apes, which has some cool imagery. I, the premise is a little shaky, but it worked better than I thought it would. Basically, it starts at the end of the first Planet of the Apes movie. All the ape scientists are going out there to blow up the Statue of Liberty because they're like, we just need to cover up all these Forbidden Zone stuff. And what comes washing up on shore but a giant dead Kong-sized gorilla. The scientists do an autopsy, realize fruits and vegetation. This is an island that can support life post-apocalyptic. We need to find it. They sail there. They bring it back in chains. Kind of the Kong story. He does climb the Empire State Building. If you remember, New York is underneath the ape planet, so he actually falls through that hole, and all those people that worship the atomic bomb are down there, and they kind of recreate Kong and kind of do the end of the second Planet of the Apes movie, too. It wasn't bad. It was pretty clever. Yeah, it sounds kind of great. <laughs> it was kind of clever. But, of course, we like team-ups. We want to see Kong fight something substantial, something his own size. When Legendary Pictures made that reboot of Godzilla back in May 2014, you can hear me on the show. I said, by God, they should get Kong together and fight Pacific Rim Jaegers, because like that would be a hit, right? <laughs> Brilliant, Stuart. But obviously, they were working on the rights. They didn't have it at the time. When they announced Godzilla, they said, we're bringing back Mothra, Ghidra, Rodan. They didn't have Kong yet. He actually was still on by Universal, and Universal hadn't given up on the idea of doing some kind of prequel in the Jackson universe. And Peter Jackson was finishing up in Middle Earth making those Hobbit movies. They were kind of hoping maybe he would come back. When he said no, they looked at some other people like Joe Cornish, Attack the Block, Guillermo del Toro was going to do it. But in the end, they got the only man that could really do it, right? Who else but Jordan Vote Roberts could make this King Kong movie? Who? I feel like we're reviewing Harley Quinn all over again. Who is this guy? I know. I had to go look. He made a movie with King in the title. Kings of Summer will not have any giant apes in it. It will make you feel like you're watching Wes Anderson or Napoleon Dynamite. It's this quirky kids movie from 2013. It's the first movie this writer-director made. And it's about three kids that decide to run away from their dad, Nick Offerman, and build a really cool treehouse. And it kind of, you know, it's, it's most... Mostly silly comedy, but it also has some danger, dramatic elements as well. And so he gets this major production for what reason? <laughs> I know. So why wouldn't he do Kong? Like, this is brilliant. I think everyone was passing. It sounds like somebody, maybe Guillermo del Toro, recommended this guy. He had networked with the right people, and they seemed to like this guy's sense of humor. Even though he had no experience making big productions, they thought he was funny. He had just got a sitcom greenlit on FX, and they thought, you know, he could bring a new level of humor and creativity to something that, quite frankly, I think we can all agree, Kong does need a facelift. I'm tired of seeing Beauty and the Beast. Please do something different with the character. So it was his idea to go to Vietnam. It's funny you mentioned maybe he was picked because of his sense of humor, because I remember the trailers and the marketing for this. It, it confused me because, yes, you say Vietnam, and it would start off like this gritty Vietnam metaphor told through King Kong, Samuel Jackson looking gruff, and then John C. Riley just comes bubbling into the trailer <laughs> like with that beard and that hair. And look, I like John C. Riley. I think he's funny. He's great even in dramatic roles, so I don't mind that. It was just felt totally weird to me that is this dark and gritty? or is this going to be a Tropic Thunder comedy? Well, by judging what they did with Godzilla, that is the most stark 
serious God, even more than the original one. Like they were really trying to make that a dramatic movie. I went back and watched it. I, I hadn't thought about it in years. I was like, well, how does that thing hold up? I gave it a mild recommend before. It's not great. I mean, I, I ended up greenlighting it mostly for the disaster porn element to it. And that stuff is really good, but it is too stark. If you're going to have giant kaiju fighting, you really do want to find a balance between, yeah, some Kubrickian thing that they were doing and, yeah, something that I guess a, a guy that did a coming-of-age movie Sundance indie film could bring to it. You want something a little bit more quirky and fun, even if you want to do a more serious Godzilla than what he did in the 70s and 80s. I need to see that original Godzilla again. I did see Godzilla King of the Monsters Keep those thoughts about it to myself until we review it late this year. But this movie coming out, I knew it was in this monster verse. I knew they were setting up King Kong to go and fight Godzilla. But I never went and saw this movie. It came out at like the end of February or early March. So I wasn't busy with other films. It's just I didn't have a compelling reason to go based on the trailers, but it was something that I did end up watching pretty quickly when it hit home video. March 9th, 2017, I would know I was there opening night specifically because I had just turned in notice at my job in L.A. I had just quit and I walked out <laughs> of the office and I needed to blow up steam and it just seemed like a fun way to like I wasn't expecting much out of it. And probably my mind was only half paying attention to what was on screen, but I did just go because. It was what movies should be sometimes, a popcorn escapist feeling. And it seemed, you know, I, I'm already on record not being in love with King Kong, but it seemed like it could have been fun. My memory of it was vague, but that it was. My memory was that it was pretty successful. Yeah, I didn't think any more about it after uh, it disappeared. But it took a while in between the two. I mean, that's three years off. It's not like they're stacking these kaiju movies like Avengers sequels. Yeah, and because I, I talked about that, the weird tone of the trailers, I just, I'm like, ah, I don't need to go see this in theaters. I'll wait till I can watch it at home. And I remember when I did watch it, because we hadn't done this retrospective yet, because all I knew of Kong was the original and the Peter Jackson one. Like, that was kind of my expectation. And this is, yeah, they're setting him up to fight Godzilla. This is a kaiju Kong, which now I know is a thing, because there was a couple Japanese films. They're more in that kaiju tradition. But because I didn't really expect Kong to be put into that mold. I kind of was turned off by it. I, you know, I was entertained, but I don't think I gave it a fair shake because it was a different Kong than the two that I liked. And one of the reasons I was compelled to see this as quickly on home viewing as I did, though, was because, all right, who have we got here? We've got Loki and Nick Fury and Corpsman Day. All right, Corpsman Day may not be a name that rolls off your tongue, but that's John C. Riley and Guardians of the Galaxy. No, whatever. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Captain Marvel. I knew Brie Larson only from Scott Pilgrim. Now, I've seen her in other stuff, but I could not remember her in anything. She'd been announced that she was going to be Captain Marvel two years after this. It took a long time for the time she was announced to the time that movie came out. I'm like, I want to see who this actress is and what she can do. Yeah, I think she had just won the Academy Award for Best Actress for Room. And so, like, this was the first movie she was in after that. I don't remember if they featured her heavily in the trailers. Again, you're really in a losing battle if you're the human star in a kaiju movie, Godzilla, King Kong, whatever. Nobody cares. We know who the real star is. You're the person <laughs> running around saying great dialogue like, ah! 
That was another thing that, you know, I initially didn't like. That she's not an Andero. Do you remember what Brie Larson did in this film before you rewatched it for this review? No, I really didn't. And when I came back to it, I'm like, okay, now I've seen Captain Marvel. I'm very familiar with Brie Larson. Where was she in this movie? I remember Tom Hiddleston. I remember John C. Riley. I remembered Sam Jackson. I did not remember Brie Larson. John C. Riley is the one I forgot. I forgot his whole storyline in this movie. I could remember the other one standing around. Again, we'll discuss this plot. That's why we come here. <laughs> I don't think it's really about the characters, but of course they're building a monster universe. And I'm thinking that some of these people, well, I, I know for a fact, some of them or their children are going to be in future movies. Because this is happening in 1973 and the other movies are happening, you know, so much later, maybe not these actors, but yes, people that look like them, although dress up to be their own daughter or son, they could pop up. And Skull Island was a hit. I mean, if you want to know who won the battle, Godzilla 2014 made 200 million in America. This one made 170. But overall, it, when you add in international, Kong did slightly better. Really? It made about 50 million more, yes. And this was also nominated for visual effects, but lost to the Blade Runner 2049. Probably the right decision. Yeah. <laughs> this has good visual effects, but Blade Runner 2049 is an underrated gem. All right, Arnie, let's find out if this one is. Give us the plot. We'll find out what happens for Kong on Skull Island. The day the Vietnam War ended in 1973, a crack military unit was sent to an uncharted island on the search for new types of life. These military boys were led by Lieutenant Colonel Preston Packard, played by Samuel L. Mother Jackson, the only soldier who seemed reluctant to return home and stop fighting. They're going at the behest of the secret government organization Monarch, led by Bill Randa, played by John Goodman. His organization is almost out of funding, and this is his last chance to prove that massive, unidentified terrestrial organisms, or MUTOs, remember those from the Godzilla film? Mm, oh, that yeah. word, <laughs> yes, that was the one thing that they gave us, the word MUTO. <laughs> yeah, so he's trying to prove that MUTOs roam the Earth and pose a danger to mankind. Randa is bringing his team of scientists, as well as a British Special Air Service captain. I don't know British military, so that's just a bunch of words to me. I think he's basically like an Air Force captain, only with an accent. James Conrad, an ace tracker, played by Tom Hiddleston. Because every pilot in the air knows exactly how to follow something on the ground. They also bring along anti-war photographer Mason Weaver, played by Brie Larson. When the movie stars, as well as extras from Aliens and the background nerds from Apollo 13 get to Skull Island, the troops start dropping seismic explosives to get a sonar reading of what's underground. But those explosions piss off the 100-foot ape that lives on the island, Kong. The massive beast swats down some of the military helicopters, killing the troops on board. The team is separated. Packard's team consists of Randa and some troops. The other group is the tracker Conrad, the photographer Weaver, and a couple scientists and soldiers. Ostensibly, the goal is to reach the island's northern tip in three days where the rescue helicopter should arrive. But in reality, Packard wants to avenge his dead soldiers and kill Kong, so he leads his men to a downed chopper to get guns and napalm. Conrad and Weaver's team find a tribe of island natives, and with them is Hank Marlowe, a World War II pilot who crash-landed on the island and has lived there for over 30 years, played by John C. Riley. Riley's job is to give lots of exposition about the island and that it's covered with monsters, the worst of which he calls skull crawlers, giant lizard-like things. 
Kong species were the natural hunters of the skull crawlers, but a giant skull crawler and his ilk killed Kong's parents, and Kong, who's still a growing ape, is the only one left. In that battle, the giant skull crawler went underground to heal. If Kong is killed, the giant skull crawler will emerge, and skull crawlers will gain island dominance, and as they are amphibious, they will then go to more populated lands to hunt. So Packard's trying to kill Kong, Conrad, Weaver, and Marlowe are trying to save Kong, and lots of monsters kill what feels like dozens of characters that don't have enough screen time to make an impression. A showdown occurs when Packard sets a trap for Kong, setting off bombs to bring him in, then setting him on fire with napalm. Conrad, Weaver, and Marlowe come, and there's a Mexican standoff, but the pro-Kong trio convince all the soldiers to let Kong live. Well, all the soldiers except Packard, who's killed by Kong. But sensing Kong's wounds, the giant skull crawler comes out and attacks the big ape. It looks like Kong is going down until Weaver shoots the skull crawler with a flare gun, giving Kong an opening to rip out the giant skull crawler's innards. The survivors, the important ones being Conrad, Weaver, and Marlowe, reach the escape choppers and vow, along with the remaining troops and scientists, to never tell what lives on the island, lest Kong be hunted by others. And in a credit scene, we see Marlowe reunited with his wife and son, who thought him dead for 30-some years. And in a post credit scene, we see Weaver and Conrad in a monarch interrogation room. Two of the scientists come in and say Kong isn't the only Mudo on the planet, and show pictures of Mothra and Godzilla, and the movie ends. Right. I think that even though this is the second MonsterVerse title, if you're watching things chronologically, this would be the first one that you would want to watch. None of the things that are happening in Godzilla 2014 have happened, other than some implication that back in the 50s, there was this nuclear test that actually wasn't a nuclear test. It was an attempt to kill this giant lizard coming out of the water. Well, it's much like the argument, which Star Wars do you watch first? Do you watch the 1977 Star Wars, or do you watch Episode One: The Phantom Menace? That's an easy question to ask. You only watch the first three. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, The Phantom Menace only works if you already know what the Jedi are and all the exposition before. The Easter eggs in this film, when they talk about Monarch and Mudos, won't bring you any thrills unless you've seen Godzilla. And if you know Godzilla, you don't have to see that 2014 one to get those references. I mean, my thing with Star Wars is, of course you watch the original ones because you don't want to spoil Empire Strikes Back. I don't think watching this before Godzilla 2014, you're spoiling anything. It's not going to ruin any surprises in that film. No, and because we we know that, yes, the Eastern monster is going to fight the Western monster. I actually think it's really clever to start in 1944 and have a Japanese soldier, an American fighter pilot, get marooned on Skull Island and fight each other. The first fighting we see are between two humans in 1944, somewhere in the South Pacific. I'll say a lot of the fighting we see is just humans in this film. But yes, I agree. I like this opening, setting it back in World War II, having these soldiers fight off. Off, and then, yes, Kong shows up. There's there's always a bigger enemy. Yeah, the humans fighting is actually funny because they find each other in the desert and these are the two worst shots in either military. Like, the American is shooting at the Japanese pilot. The Japanese pilot is unarmed. 
bullets are going to the left, going to the right, and it ends in a pretty fun chase. And, of course, the Japanese soldier pulls out a sword and tries it that way. And, and Kong's like, yeah, enough of this crap. And I did wince at that moment where the American, like, puts his hand on the sword and gets it sliced, trying to prevent it not going into him. We might also notice, hey... I did. That's a wedding ring. That seems like a detail you wouldn't put in there unless this character was coming back. But I'll admit it. I forget about this character. They do a good job of distracting me, leaping forward into a montage, a credit sequence designed by Kyle Cooper, who does all of these cool credit sequences ever since seven. Here's just everything that's happened in the world since we launched the space race and now have satellites that can map the entire globe. What does that mean? How can we not know about Skull Island? We do. It's just covered in supernatural storms. And so it's risky to go in there. It's the Bermuda Triangle. Every time someone gets close, like these pilots, they get sucked in and never come out. And we get introduced to Monarch of the 50s, and it's still called Monarch. It's not like the SSR and Captain America, the first Avenger that then became S.H.I.E.L.D. later on. Yeah, it starts in the 50s. Right. Yeah. But it was always called Monarch. It never had a different name. But it's run by somebody who I didn't expect to be in this film, John Goodman. I mean, I know he's done serious roles. I know he's done just everything. He's an actor of great range, but I still think of him primarily as a comedian. I mean, in 2017, he would have been working on the revival of Roseanne. You don't think this is a comedic role? I I do feel it's a lot of tongue-in-cheek. I don't take him as a very serious character. What he reminds me of physically is Raymond Burr. If you remember when they made Godzilla for America, the original 1954 movie, they shot stuff with American actor Raymond Burr, a hefty guy. They kind of imply he has the same backstory, that he was an American that was on this boat, the USS Lawton, back in 1954 when Godzilla surfaced and they zapped him with nuclear power. And now he takes this very seriously. He has stayed with Monarch. Everyone else thinks he wears a tinfoil hat. But the mapping system, Landsat, has found this island. And because the Vietnam War is ending, it means that there's no reason that they can't use the available troops that are hanging out in that area and go investigate. Yeah, they also drop a line how in three days the Russians are going to discover this island with their own satellite, so they got to get there first. I don't know, maybe there will be a Skull Island too set back in the 70s with the Americans fighting the Russians. I guess that's to give this some urgency, or maybe he was just lying to give it urgency. Yeah, I mean, that's if you want to motivate anybody to spend money during those decades saying that the Soviets were going to beat us there, beat us to the moon, beat us wherever. Yeah, all right, well, we can't have that. They're the one thing that you can't allow to get to Skull Island. So, all right, go assemble your team and see what you can do. Yeah, I definitely thought that was just a negotiating tactic. But I do wonder why the Russians or the Chinese or somebody else didn't also have satellites and be like, hey, what's on that island in the 50 years between the times we'll see Kong? Maybe we'll find out in the next film this later this year. I think they might know. But again, if everyone's crashing around it, like you just stay away, right? It's not worth it. It's very small in consideration. I mean, I guess every swat of land is valuable to somebody, but it seems to me like if everyone dies that goes near it, then okay. Well, we're too busy fighting the Vietnam War. Again, that's the big thing that's happening. We even see Nixon on the TV set withdrawing. We know what's going to be happening over in Saigon when we cut over there and we see 
Yes. Samuel L. Jackson telling his troops it's time to go home. And these troops, do either of you get names or anything out of them? There's just, there's so many troops here talking about their mothers and things. I recognize faces, but I think this movie just has too many damn characters to try to make us feel a connection to. Yeah, but I I think soldiers, everyday grunts, and again, who's more sympathetic than a Vietnam soldier who, again, you know, these people went over there, they weren't respected when they came back, they don't know what they're even going to do. That's really Jackson's quandary, is that he doesn't want to go home. He has been doing this so long, and we lost, that he's just not, he's not happy with the medals. He has a box full of, you know, awards saying you're great, but the fact of the matter is that he wants to keep fighting. You know, it's a complicated situation already. You you got to have troops because you got to have cannon fodder for when they get to the island. I think they do it well enough. I get the vibe of what these Vietnam soldiers are going through without, yeah, getting invested in any of them. I just note, okay, someone died, someone died. Like, I okay, they're, they're there to die. I like the vibe that they give during this opening stuff. Just where are they at in their mindset? Where is... Packard out in his mindset. Uh, but yeah, you're right. They're not important, but we need cannon fodder. Yeah, I particularly laugh when they introduce this guy, Jack Chapman. He's second in command and he's trying to write a letter to his son, Billy. I mean, that all but screams dead meat. I mean, we just, we're laughing in recognition of like, uh-oh, you might as well put on a red shirt. I mean, it's just, you're doomed here. But again, it's, they're a fun crew. I agree. They're not defined characters. They're types, but they seem like people that, yeah, I can understand how frustrated they might be thinking, oh, we get to go home. Oh no, there's one more mission. Our commander has seen to it that we have to go help out what, they're told is just surveillance. Some people want to trek into the jungle and take pictures for three days and wear the military backup. Meanwhile, the other person coming, we get John Goodman and his subordinate Brooks going to Saigon to get Tom Hiddleston, Pool Q Ninja. Yeah, this was a rewrite. This wasn't how they originally planned this. The script went through all kinds of permutations, including modernizing it and having Tom Hiddleston being looking for his brother on Skull Island. I mean, again, I think the idea is if we're hiring these people, don't we want them to continue on in the sequels? Aren't they part of the monster verse? We know that if it's 1973 and everything else is happening 40, 50 years later, this is a one shot. And maybe that's why Tom Hiddleston signed on to it. Maybe he didn't want to do several movies with an ape. He's done several movies with Hemsworth. I mean, it can't be that much different. Well, I actually think, you know, that's someone you can play off of. Yes, he's a big lumbering Hulk ape, you could even call him. But there is banter. There is ways to play off of this. This is a different Kong. We'll talk about how they realize him. It is not even Andy Serkis. There's no actor to play off here. There is one who did a lot of mocap. No, I know. But it, he is not an actor on set giving a performance. Hiddleston's just looking at like a big green ball way up in the sky. Get that eye line right. Correct. Yes. So would this be fun to do as an actor? I don't know. It seems like a paycheck. And it's an unpopular opinion, but I've never had much use for Tom Hiddleston. He always felt like a watered down fastbender to me. I actually agree. I like Hiddleston as Loki, specifically as Loki. But other than that, I don't like him. I've seen some of Only Lovers Left Alive. I've seen Crimson Peak. I've seen Kong Skull Island. I think there's a reason he's going to do a Loki television show, you know? I just don't think he's found his niche 
outside of the green cape. Yeah, I know people go crazy for him, maybe because the ladies think he's cute. I don't know. He Loki, yeah, he was fine. And I do like Only Lovers Left Alive, but I think he's playing an unlikable character somewhat in that movie. So, yeah, you say Fassbender. I got a better grasp of who he is as an actor than hiddleston outside of the marvel movies hiddleston because of loki feels like he likes to play to the crowd he wants to do something devilish maybe he could work in some way like harrison ford does here i'll say this he's no worse than adrian brody or jeff bridges other actors that have played this role in a kong movie that first mate for the 1933 movie was no great shakes either this is kong it's not going to be their film he's fine here but if the thought was we're creating human characters that are just as compelling as our ape this will never track with me. I do not care about Conrad. And I think that's part of the movie's fault. Like, they give everyone very generic backgrounds. Like, the fact that he's a military tracker, and if he had a reason to be home, he'd be home by now. And, ooh, he's got a journey. He's got something to discover. Like, yeah, these are all cliches. These are all tropes. This is all shorthand. And for this kind of movie, that's fine. If you want to, you know, raise the bar a little, then yes, you do have fully developed characters, but I'm not going to hold it too much against this film. I feel like they could just have the military troop and Brie Larson. I feel like, yeah, they want a photographer there to document how big the ape prints are, but like, you don't need him. And speaking of Brie Larson, why do they pick her? I, I get it. You want to film this expedition. You want to get some stuff to document what's seen. But why is she picked? Because she's just standing around. Like, I, she seems to have even less of a backstory than the generic ones given to these military guys. I'm going to give Brie Larson's character this, though. Because one of my pet peeves is social justice warrior agendas and period pieces. Where you have a movie that's taking place in World War One, and yet we have women on the battlefield shooting guns because that's what modern audiences want to see. And when I came back to this movie, I got it confused. The horrible one is The Legend of Tarzan with Margot Robbie as this kick-ass woman in, like, the 18th century, so out of place. I actually like how Brie Larson is here. They're surprised it's a woman because she has kind of a masculine name, and I think she does her role well without ever feeling out of place. And I will just put, she did social justice warrior this. She insisted she was not going to carry a gun or shoot a gun. That's why they made her a photographer. And she also, I think, they didn't say this in the commentary, but my sense is it was her idea not to have a love story with Tom Hiddleston. Or Kong. (laughs) They keep it professional. So consequently, there's just nothing about these characters that is going to develop over the course of the three days that seems to mean anything. Here's the thing. She is a very minor character. She barely matters more than some of those grunts I was talking about. She comes along to take photos, and she does, and she's there for someone... You know, she and Hiddleston are going to bounce dialogue off each other. They need somebody to talk to in order to communicate. But I don't get anything out of her in this movie, positive or negative. She's just sort of there. But I think you do pay attention to her, not because 
specifically she's just the only female but because this is a kong film and the way i came into this film was knowing the classic kong and so okay here's the female character this is going to be the relationship character with kong and so you know that's why i'm going to pay attention to her it's weird that she has no backstory it's just she's a photographer and yeah we'll find out she doesn't like war and that's it what i like is that when she's heading out of this air base with all of these soldiers they're loading up on a ship she meets i keep calling him sam Jackson, I guess I should acknowledge his character name is Preston Packard. I still like just saying Sam Jackson. I'll probably say that for the rest of the show. But Sam seems to hold her accountable for losing the war. The reason why we aren't still fighting Vietnam is because people like you took pictures that changed the minds of people back home. We could have stayed and fought and won this thing like World War II if you hadn't stuck your camera lens in here. And I think that's an interesting dynamic that maybe doesn't get enough airtime in the middle of the movie, but at least sets up some good tension. Yeah, I found it a little bit annoying. She calls herself an anti-war photographer. I mean, your job title is war photographer if you go into a war and take pictures. If you're an anti-war photographer, you go into a war and then expose film you needlessly? I do not know. But of course, I mean, I mean, you do know that Vietnam is a war that we think about very differently because we have those pictures. We saw what soldiers did and what happened to them. And yes, yeah, so on some level, Sam Jackson is right that she brought a level of exposure that made people very nervous about staying. There were other reasons, too. It's a very complicated story. But yes, I do think that that's a good tension to have, and I like the fact that she's there to create animosity with the head of this military outfit. Yeah, I just wish she had more presence here. And like Jacob said, she doesn't even become Kong's bride. One of the things I'm going to really compliment this movie for is being the first Kong movie in a series and not telling the same Kong story we've seen time and again. We're going to start with Kong right up front. We're not going to have to wait 45 minutes. I mean, come on, King Kong Lives was totally different. It's different without being ridiculous, okay? We've had Son of <laughs> Kong. We've had King Kong Lives. We had King Kong Escapes. I, I mean, if you buy into the premise, the hollow earth theory, all that is ridiculous. But yes, I get what you're saying. I just think this one, I have groused about the pacing in every King Kong film as they try to get to the island. Here, we start with Kong. You know, he's in the very first scene, then we have the credits, and then it feels very fast-paced montage as we're getting these people together to go to the island. We are getting there fast. We are sacrificing characterization to do so. I actually don't think we get there fast. It takes 25 minutes, but they have so many characters. The ones you cut are the Landsat guys, the two guys that have the satellite photos. John Ortiz and some guy named Steve are also tagging along, of course, because they are the dead meat. They will both be killed in semi-spectacular ways, so that's why you do it. But, yeah, they, they give us the brief here as everyone is loading up that, yeah, they're about to approach a island with a mythical past. And you mentioned the tag along to John Goodman, this geologist Brooks. It's really his theory. His theory is the hollowed earth theory. He believes there are pockets throughout the planet where things could be. And he doesn't elaborate on what those things are, but they're mudos. He thinks giant monsters potentially could be underneath this surface. They're not digging for oil. And so he's going to have these soldiers drop bombs and then see what pops up. Take some pictures. And it definitely 
has a Apocalypse Now Flight of the Valkyries feel as these helicopters are going over the island, the jungles, and dropping the bombs. But instead of getting a giant Marlon Brando as the person you're going after, you're going to get a giant Kong. And this is the biggest Kong ever, right? No, second biggest. The biggest one is the Japanese movie, King Kong versus Godzilla, King Kong's Escapes. He scaled at 150 feet. This is 100 feet. But yes, he's big. And I will compliment the film. Like, it does catch me off guard when Kong makes his appearance because I've kind of been rocking out during this helicopter ride. We have the Stooges. Then we're playing some Sabbath while we're dropping these bombs. And then all of a sudden, a palm tree just comes flying through a helicopter. Like, it caught me totally off guard. And then it just erupts into a huge action scene. Yeah, this is a different take on Kong for lots of ways. One, because he will not be playing out a Beauty and the Beast love story, as we've already implied. But also because... I don't think that we're to think of him as exploited embodiment of nature. This Kong is a god. They've been building that up throughout the whole act one. You know, they're on the ship called Athena. And then there's all this clumsy dialogue about Icarus. They're going to Greek myth. And I read the prequel slash sequel comic. This Kong is thousands of years old. He is supernatural. And maybe part of the reasons why there are purple haze storms around his island is that he is a magical, mythical being. And so if he fell off the Empire State Building, this Kong, he would live. It wouldn't kill him. He is that much of a god. I don't take him as a god. I mean, I know the tribal people view him as a god, but I just view him as a mudo, you know, as Godzilla, as a monster who lives on this island, who is going to make his own decisions of good and evil. Which is kind of how all those mudos are treated. Like, we'll talk about it when we get into Godzilla, King of the Monsters, but it is almost, maybe not God, like, in the Christian sense, but in this Cthulhu, Lovecraftian type of way, just these ancient beings that roam the earth. I just... I think he would survive the fall from the Empire State Building because he's so damn big and he's <laughs> resilient. I don't think he's unkillable. I think that's the whole point of this movie is he's very killable. And, and how are we supposed to think about this, Kong? Because, I, again, I know my initial reaction, it wasn't about the size difference, but it, it was about the posture. I loved what Andy Serkis brought to Kong. Having him move more gorilla-like, I don't know, it looks weird when Kong stands straight up. I know he's done that in every other movie. I just love what Serkis did so much, like, that really tainted how I first saw this, but are we supposed to ever feel for this Kong or I'm so won over what Circus did with King Kong like that? That is a Kong I admire this one. Yeah, he, he's a scary monster, but I'm kind of on the side because his territory is being invaded. Yeah, they've taken the human out of it. Toby Kebbell, the actor, we see him. He is Chapman. He's the second in command. The guy that ends up with the stash of weapons that ends up getting killed by the lizard later. He is actually also doing some reference work as this Kong. And what that means is they filmed him a couple days, eat some Twizzlers, we'll make it look like an octopus later. <laughs> How this Kong moves and some of his facial expressions comes from this actor, but once he was done with those couple days of filming, it was all on the CGI animators to create their Kong. So it is really the for the first time we're seeing a CGI, I would say, in total performance. We are not to think of this as mocap. And so I think you lose something. I think that was even the idea. We do not want this to seem like another character. We want this to seem like some giant 
mythical creature. And yeah, what an entrance. I think this is the best scene of the movie. You just cannot expect. Again, they just went through a storm. I was not expecting flying trees <laughs> and all that they're facing and this incredible action sequence. I kind of like how they give us the Empire State Building fight at the beginning of this movie, like Kong versus flying objects, except Kong's just going to destroy everyone. Like the humans in this film are, are not off to a good start. No, it's Kong's revenge on the helicopters that shot him in the 70s. I understand they had to put this in the year it is because that's when the Vietnam War ended. They wanted to have it on the end of the Vietnam War. I'm like, if this was just two years later, at least they'd have to be paying homage to that 70s King Kong a little bit. But I do feel like Vote Roberts here has, is paying homage to all of the previous Kongs. But this Kong is fairly homicidal. One of the things about King Kong in the past is he's never been a huge killer until you attacked him. Well, they're, they're waking up the skull crawlers. We'll find out. That's why he's so pissed. Yes. The ecosystem balance that he keeps in check is that I keep flesh-eating lizards down below. And you just blew them up, damn you. Now I gotta do a whole lot of work. <laughs> Cranky, I don't want to do it. <laughs> and so let me just swat you down. Yeah, he does swat everyone down. And I think you do, again, there's some really good shots in this film. And I know they're heavily CGI and you can make them look great because you have that kind of time to really develop it. But they're great looking nonetheless. Like when you get Packard, when he's been down and he's looking through the flames at Kong and Kong's looking back at him, like you're setting up the rivals in this film. And I, I again, this is a big popcorn film. But I'm munching that popcorn with a smile on my face. I, it looks great. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why they went with this no-name director, sorry, Vote Roberts, but the reason why you vote Vote Roberts <laughs> is because he was also an illustrator, and he did a lot of this work storyboarding, and I think just his pictures. He had a lot of these things that just feel like poster shots or just one sheets that you would use to sell a movie. Like when we see them looking at the silhouette of that monkey, is that a monkey You know, up against that setting sun? It's just a powerful image. And that all came from this director's art portfolio. And it's an action-y film. And with characters that we know, going off memory, I'll have to rank these later this year, but going off memory, this is a hell of a lot better at 30 to 45 minutes than the Godzilla one was with Quicksilver starring. Well, it was a, it's a bigger sequence than you're going to get for of the first hour of Godzilla. You can argue about what's better or not. Again, the tone is a little bit more funny because we have the sensibility. I mean, it's a serious moment. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure for these people it's not funny. But you do laugh when you have that shot of inside the chopper and the ape is shaking them and they're falling into his mouth. I mean, I do. And then you cut away and Steve is biting into a sandwich. <laughs> Even in the most serious moments, I do feel like there's a playfulness you will not find in that 2014 Godzilla. I think it also comes with bringing Sam Jackson. Sam Jackson has a certain seriousness that plays his levity. He can be serious. I, I don't know how often he does try for pure seriousness anymore, though. He kind of shows up. You call him Sam Jackson. That's because that's who he plays. He's playing Sam Jackson and then leaving again. Although I do feel he's the straight man here. He is the one that is angry. He watches his men be totally decimated. Again, he's trying to win the Vietnam War. Now he's back in battle, and he is not going to leave this island until the enemy, which now is embodied by this 100-foot ape, Kong must die. And so you see him, yeah, make that pact in this moment. 35 minutes in, this is deadly serious. He is, if this is Apocalypse Now, he is the Brando character. 
he is actually the crazy one that is going to take the people on the journey towards uh well they all survive i should i should <laughs> say most people live it's not it doesn't get as bleak as apocalypse now but if there is a character leading people towards the madness of war it would be sam jackson yeah with Peter Jackson's Kong, we talked, well, Apocalypse Now, Heart of Darkness, to me, they're more or less the same thing. But he tried to bring that in there. And I think because that is a more somber film, it, it, it's an artier film. When you have those kind of pretensions and they're not landing, it comes off as really ridiculous. This has the same pretensions, but because it's a big, loud, dumb action film, like I roll with it more, it just feels more tongue in cheek. And, and I don't have to take it as serious. And, and that just makes it a little bit more fun. And I think, again, this is just a really well stage sequence and it really makes me excited because I feel like yeah this is going to be different they're not going to put this ape in chains and drag him back in the next 10 minutes like they're going to have <laughs> to fight this thing it won't be easy it's kind of what I wish that 1976 Kong had done taken a little bit more time in the capture of Kong or in this case in the killing of Kong but what happens in, in all of this rubble, we have three groups of survivors. There are people spread out over 45 miles and will follow intercutting between these three teams as they have three days to get to the exit point. Because if they're not there for the pickup, then they're stranded on Skull Island, well, as long as John C. Riley has been, probably. And they're broken into three groups, really. We've got Packard's group, who... As I mentioned in the plot summary, he's going to go hunting for Kong. And then we got Chapman, who's off on his own, just alone. I don't know why they give us that. I don't know what that progresses or tells us about the island. Yeah, I don't think it serves anything except to give Jackson a reason to keep fighting and, and to pretend that he's trying to save him later on. Yeah, well, I mean, he has all the goods. If they're going to kill Kong, they need napalm. And he went down with this ship, the Sea Stallion. All the napalm is on his chopper. And, you know, he's in a different part. I mean, they really wanted to feature different areas of Skull Island. It doesn't feel homogenous. Where he he's at is some they call it the paper forest i read a prequel comic guys i know the names for all of these areas <laughs> but it has the yellowish tall tree aesthetic to it that looks different from other parts of the island are you talking about where kong eats some sushi that's what i remember chapman is he gets to see kong eat <laughs> yeah he, yeah he's he's on the uh shoreline and yeah we have a throwback to one of my favorite scenes from king kong versus godzilla they did it on purpose yes i get the reference now <laughs> They definitely said we wanted to have a squid again because that was so cool. And, you know, you just think about it. Like, this is his average day. Like, this is how he eats a meal. Poor Kong. No wonder he's so angry. I mean, I would be angry if this is what I had to fight all day long, every day, for millions of years. Keep in mind, he's been doing this for centuries. And, yeah, Chapman is the guy that's been writing Dear Billy, Dear Billy. Where's his death moment? He ends up shooting a spore mantis. He's sitting on a log. It comes alive. And if he hadn't fired that gunshot, I don't think that the lizard would have heard and eaten him. And the third group is Conrad and Weaver. And I think they have the most interesting journey. They're going to meet island natives, the least racist island natives in King Kong history. They look race appropriate, Pacific Asian. Yeah, they, they're not ooga oogaing all over the place. They're very somber. No bone in the nose. They are locals. They This movie was shot on location in Vietnam. These were villagers that were in remote areas that they coerced into doing this and willingly signed up, having no idea about what movies were even. So they really they did go native here these are an authentic portrayal of uh, some tribe 
And they wanted to trim some of this. I'm glad to know that you liked it because there was definitely some worry. This movie runs a little long. So when you see Tom Hiddleston and all, like seeing this giant water buffalo, these are the things they're like, oh, we don't need to see nice giant mudos. We need to see mean mudos. Yeah, I I, I think you need to see that water buffalo because it's going to set up why Kong likes Brie Larson's character later on. Right. Yeah, it, it works. I, I mean, it's only a couple minutes. Yeah, it, I I want those in a Kong film. And again, I'm I'm realizing, okay, there could be different models. There's the Kaiju Kong, as I'll call it. But you still, Dino, you want Kong to fight big things. You want big monsters and dinosaurs in a Kong film. So yeah, I don't mind that we get a few moments with a giant water buffalo. Yeah, Act 2 should be about human beings walking along Skull Island. In the tradition of all Kong movies, this is the part where we get dinosaurs and giant snakes and what have you. Or or in this case, giant mother long legs. I had to check. Was this movie R or PG-13? Because when we get this scene of some hapless soldier looking up and getting speared through the mouth by a spider leg, that really does push the rating. I couldn't believe they did that. Yeah, there's blood throughout this movie. From the very beginning with the Japanese soldier and the blood as he's cutting the hands, pushing the sword through, to some of the deaths here. Bodies burning, bodies bleeding, bodies impaled. Yeah, it's it's definitely a hard PG-13. For sure. And you need that blood because that's part of how Sam Jackson is able to track. You know, they look at a mountainside. Kong, uh, during that big fight, I love that he reached out and grabbed a helicopter and the blades chopped his hand. So he's bleeding. He is leaving a trail for them. And this makes Sam Jackson very happy. He's convinced that if they get to that napalm, he's sure that they can kill him. God, he is not. Man is king. I don't want to hear about no king ape. And Kong's going to take a beating throughout this. It seems like most encounters, he's going to get a little more wounded, a little more wounded, and carry that with him. But he also has a nobility. You want to retain that. I felt like they could have made the 1976 King Kong more like Jaws and less like the fairy tale. You could have had it been more scary. But I do think you always want to have some purpose that Kong serves that is noble. And here we will learn his noble purpose when we have Conrad and the gang yeah, reach that tribe and really meet, yes, the soldier from the beginning of the movie. You might have forgotten. It's been 50 minutes since we saw that U.S. airman landed on Skull Island in 1944. He's still alive here in 1973. Yes, John C. Riley, who... It works for his character because his character has been among these mute tribes people for the whole time, but he feels like he's in a different movie than everybody else. And I'm glad. I actually feel like if they had tried to make him Marlon Brando, that wouldn't be fun. He's more like Dennis Hopper. Like, he's just the wild, crazy one, and it's just kind of fun to see him learning all the things he missed. Like, oh, a man got to the moon. Well, what does he eat? Because I've been kind of isolated as well. And so, like, yeah, his whole story is actually, to me, he becomes the main character of Kong Skull Island. He is the only human being that matters. He does something that nobody in any previous movie has done. He actually shares the spotlight with Kong. He doesn't steal it away, but he at least looms as large as Kong once his story is being told. I think there's a little much of him. That's the only thing is there's some scenes where I think the director finds it funnier than I do when they're talking about the cubs versus the tigers and fixing the boat. 
there were definitely scenes that I felt if we cared more about plot, is this a comedy or an action film? If it's an action film, then some of these scenes of jokes needed to go. If it's a comedy, then scenes can have no points except to amuse. Yeah, I, I think this is a fun blockbuster film. It could also use some trimming with the editing, I think. Like, yeah, do we need a lot of scenes where they're fixing up a boat? plane or a plane boat, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's not as excessive as Peter Jackson. I would never say that. There's still some fat on this meat, though, that could have been trimmed. Well, if you go and see Kings of Summer, this director's first film, one of the big thrusts of that story, if you want to call it that, where these kids create this dream treehouse. And so he said this is sort of a carryover here. The idea that the crash planes end up getting reconfigured into this vehicle that will actually be, you know, the boat like Apocalypse now that they'll ride in. It's also apparently a Metal Gear Solid reference. This director loves video games in the commentary. He is dropping all the time references to games I don't know. Does he love Star Wars? Because Artie, did you hear the Millennium Falcon? Like when, when that boat was powering down? Like that was straight from Star Wars. Yes. Well, and the Millennium Falcon's engines were taken from some World War II plane. So it does fit. Oh, okay. So maybe that's what it's from. <laughs> but it definitely sounded like the exact same choking engine sound effect yeah exactly we've entered a regressive world where he's like peter pan or something like that we're in neverland here and the sadness is that well yes he's been marooned he left to go fight world war ii knowing that his wife was pregnant 29 years now passing he knows that they are still out there do they want to see him has she remarried what is their life like could he get back there his reason for living has also died gunpei the japanese soldier that was coming at him with a samurai sword ended up helping him make this float like they ended up becoming friends they learned how to work side by side i actually kind of wish we could see some of that story i wonder if i might like that movie better than this but at any rate the point is that this is a character that has lost a lot and is ready to come home yeah and his is kind of the story i'm most invested in like is it one of the soldiers someone like makes a reference like his wife's probably thinks he's dead and not waiting for him anymore it's probably true it's a harsh joke but it's a harsh reality and it makes me care more about marlo's character because yeah that that's sad he's got a son out there and will he be reunited like as goofy as this character is i'm I'm also kind of the most invested in his story because I don't think anyone really has like an arc that they're trying to accomplish, a goal that they're trying to accomplish. You're wondering the whole time, right? There's a blonde chick here. We know she's Kong's type. What is it going to be like when they finally meet? And they have this awkward scene where she thinks she's Captain Marvel. Not yet, but she goes out there <laughs> to lift a plane off a giant ox. Yeah, helicopter off of a giant water buffalo. Sure, sure. But you know what I mean. There's no way she can live that. Kong comes, lifts it. What's he going to do? He's going to scrunch his face and, and leave. He's not in love with her. They're not going to play with those uncomfortable sexual dynamics, and I think that's wise. Again, it's it's not that movie. That That's what I came to realize, thanks to this retrospective in part, that there's different Kongs out there. But yeah, it, it is the reason why Kong, I guess, is, is not going to eat her later on. Like, he recognizes that she was trying to help that animal. Yeah, it, it's professional. I mean, I think Brie Larson just, I keep it professional. There will be no sexual <laughs> innuendo. I don't want any touching. I will not get in the palm of that monkey. <laughs> 
I'm not inviting you to do this ape and you will respect my boundaries. And so it's a strange, in some ways refreshing, because I don't want Beauty and the Beast again. But in other ways, it leaves me asking, well, then why are you here? If not to uh, just remind us of that story. I guess it's just we're to think of this as progressive, that we can have this blonde woman here and not feel that she has to be a damsel in distress in an ape's palm until the end. They do do it a little. Yeah, a little bit. Very little. It's not a love story, though. Yeah. And again, they don't even develop a love story with her and Hiddleston. They have lots of scenes of them just looking at each other. Very professional. I don't see any, like, glimmer of romance (laughs) there. Just nope. Just very chaste. And so, too much? Would we enjoy it more if this large cast were being whittled down? If we were seeing more of these people we know die? Because we are seeing soldiers, yeah, eat spider legs and what have you. But they're not the people that we're following. And it may mean maybe more excitement if we were saw someone that we kind of liked get crunched underfoot. Yeah, they all are going to stay alive till the climax or the credits. And it is frustrating because... It's so obvious. They don't spend time humanizing the characters that are, as Jacob called them, the cannon fodder. But there's no suspense. I never think Tom Hiddleston, Brie Larson, John Goodman are going to get stomped early on. Right. It's 72 minutes, just to point out, before anyone that we've been hanging with gets killed. Nunes, the guy from Landsat, has been hanging around them. You forget even why, but... Mustache guy, right? I never even got his name. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's got this suitcase, and he's riding along in the plot. And just when it looks like they're going to reunite with Sam Jackson's people and everything's good, these psycho vultures fly down and pull him up into the air and rip him into pieces. Yeah, except I thought he was kind of humorous because he's kind of funny looking. And I I don't know. Again, everything's kind of tongue in cheek in this movie. And I'm not sad, though, when he dies. And that's the weird place I'm at with this film. It is called Kong Skull Island. But I feel like it's mostly, hey, here's some people on the Skull Island. And then Kong's going to show up every once and again. In a lot of ways, that's like a Godzilla film. Like, it's a lot of people stuff. And then Godzilla comes and smashes stuff. Like, we'll get some big Kong fights here. This probably is a better balance than that 2014 Godzilla. I haven't rewatched that. I was planning on doing that when we get to the Godzilla stuff. But yeah, I do feel because this is mostly about humans dying and maybe I should care about one or two of them at least. Like, give me something. Well, what's the fix? Do you think that it's possible that in when, during that awesome fight at the 25-minute mark, one helicopter goes down and or Kong takes them with him to his cave and we actually have Kong as a character interacting with, I don't know, Breed Larson, Tom Hiddleston? Could we have a believable, dramatic situation where they befriend this ape god? I don't know about this Kong. Like, this one is such a beast and is, I don't know, kind of put off by everyone I get it and like so I don't know I would have to see if I would buy into him being a little bit more friendly I what I'm presented I I don't think I would that's where I'm at is that's something that we saw with Peter Jackson's film and I didn't like it and here I like that this is what feels like a mostly primal beast and you know the fact that he doesn't kill all the humans the fact that he can recognize dangerous humans from non-threatening humans that doesn't make him more intelligent than a dog you know dogs can tell if you're threatening or if you're not 
going to attack them and they can be friendly or they can be vicious. And so that's kind of the level of intelligence I give him. You know, he's very trainable. He'll let you pet him if he trusts you, but he's not going to sit there and converse and he's not going to turn into Lucy from Congo and start signing. Right. Yeah. They built that giant wall. The tribe still has all of that going, but it is not for him. There is something else on this. And we learn all of this really from John C. Riley. He's the one that gives him the nickname Skull Crawlers. It really explains the fact this is this movie's version of Dinosaur. Although it was funny, the director, again, he was really big on video games. He was thinking about Cubone. If you remember Pokemon. <laughs> Pokemon, yeah. Remember the guy that wears his mother's skull uh-huh. on his head? Yes. That's what he designed. That's what he wanted to go for here with this design. I mean, these aren't like puppy dogs with skulls on their heads, but they do have skulls on their head. Like their skeleton is outside of their body, at least where their head is. Yeah, exoskeleton. And yeah, I think he listed some other things. Again, he had a lot of references. This movie is ladled with Easter eggs. I only got some of them because I don't play modern day video games. He was really geeking out at the design and having... This be the enemy. I mean, you need that. I mean, even in Godzilla 2014, there was that other praying mantis thing that came up that Godzilla got to fight. You can't just have it be Kong versus Sam Jackson. There really needed to be something. So what do you guys think about the the non-dinosaurs? It's interesting because I feel that they're in a corner where they can't do dinosaurs because it's Mutos, right? We have Godzilla, so we can't have a T-Rex and have it make sense. We don't want the Mutos to be Jurassic World, which came out not all that long before this. Yeah, that was a, a specific point of this director is that he was like, because of Jurassic World, I don't want to do traditional T-Rex stuff. Yeah, so they have to create Mutos, but Mutos that are non-threatening enough that we don't care that we never see them again. <laughs> and so they're all pretty generic, except for the skull crawlers. I do like the squid scene. I do like that he goes and has some calamari. Yeah, but these skull crawlers, that's fine. You you don't want to do dinosaurs. Yeah, come up with something that's more Muto-like and, and, and looks like something maybe from a Godzilla film. I'm not a huge fan of this design. Like, it feels like maybe a little bit over-designed. Like, I don't know why they don't have back legs. I'm trying to think <laughs> about the evolutionary course of these creatures. I, I don't know. Maybe Hollow Earth is very different than the surface here, but it feels weird, like, that they're just pulling their heavy bodies along and they have a skeleton on their head. Like, it looks cool, uh, but okay, fine. I'll give it to this film because it's entertaining enough. Here's what I'm missing. If indeed they're aping Apocalypse Now, and I feel like they're trying to a lot, the sepia color and the dropping of the napalm and all of that, the thing that's so great about that movie is its escalation. The further you go down that river, the crazier things get. I actually feel like they blew their wad very early. The most exciting stuff happened at the beginning of Act 2. And now all of this other stuff, these fights with these yeah non-dinosaurs or the birds that come down, they're okay. They're fine, but they're not able to match or surpass what has already been done until, I guess, we get to the Kong graveyard. That's where we're going to actually lose John Goodman. Yeah, this is the bones of his parents killed by the giant skull crawler. 
Is he an only child? I was trying to figure out, are there just his parents? I don't know if I missed something. Was there anything in the prequels, Stuart? You missed this wonderful comic that came out accompanying it. (laughs) I could could hear the sarcasm. (laughs) It wasn't even available for, like, digital. I had to go buy a physical copy for, like, 15 bucks. They're like, (laughs) all right, what's the origin of Kong? It is both a sequel and a prequel. Brooks and San, maybe the most useless character in this, is the biologist hanging out with the geologist. Yeah, I'm like, she's here because, what, she's Japanese? And this is going to tie into Godzilla eventually? Somebody's idea is that they're going to get married after this adventure, have a son named Aaron, and in this comic, Aaron brings a whole bunch of soldiers back to Skull Island for the first time. Nobody has been back since. Kong is left here in 1995, and one of those people takes a tribal herbal medicine and trips and has a hallucination about the origin of Kong. So right in the middle of this comic, (laughs) we find out that, yes, they were born in this pit. Like, you actually see the apes, like, procreate and have this Kong here. This is his actual birthplace, cradle of life happening here. And again, he's been alive for centuries, maybe... Yeah, millions of years. It's not clear, but this is the comic really asserting the idea like these are supernatural creatures that are more powerful than any other ape simian we would see on Earth. I feel bad if Kong is the last. I mean, I understand that's the setup of this plot that he's the only one who can protect us from the skull crawlers. So nothing can happen to him because of the skull crawlers. But yet it seems to me he's going to die. And there's a lot of skull crawlers around to still breed. And those skull crawlers, they could get off the island. Kong just hasn't let them. Well, you know, yes. Is it a danger for the tribal people or is it a danger for all of Earth? It seems to me with that cosmic storm, that, that purple haze that swirls around the island, they're not getting off. I feel like it's a pretty contained problem. It's a problem for anyone on Skull Island. I don't know if it's a problem for anybody else. But yes, in this ecosystem, the reason why all the other creatures are able to flourish and live, the reason why John C. Riley has lasted so long is because all these little lizards and this mythical big one, which we know they got to save for a climax, are being stomped down, kept in the underground hollow earth. But that will all change here as we see Samuel Jackson uh, not listen to any of this and say, no, I want to kill this ape. And it starts here with this bone graveyard attack. The whole point that Sam Jackson has been spinning is that, oh, yeah, we got to get Chapman, right? Chapman, Chapman, Chapman. I don't care about the napalm. I care about Chapman. Well, one of these big creatures actually upchucks his skull. Conveniently, it still has his dog tag on it. No neck, but it's got a dog tag around it. Yeah, so, like, this is not what they need to do, right? But but Sam Jackson is insistent. But I got the sense... Because I agree with you. I thought everyone saw that skull get spit out with the dog tags. But then later on, I think it's Hiddleston's characters like, oh, look, no, he's actually dead. Everyone here's his dog tags. Like, so they didn't see that. And they, I don't know. It's kind of messy, but it's entertaining. Hiddleston's not doing enough, right? Like, I feel like they even have a, a scene here feels awkwardly inserted where like, we're going to give you a gas mask and a ninja sword. and But like, I really need for him to step up. If he is the hero of this, boy, does he get put in the back row. 
I mean, I never notice him in all of this flurry. I'm paying attention to John Goodman being eaten while being playing with a flash photography and even Brie Larson sliding under bones and, and avoiding the jaws of this skull crawler. But I do not notice Tom Hiddleston in this movie. And it seems to me you either completely eliminate him and give all his parts to the soldiers or you beef it up and really give him a moment where they're only alive because of him. As it is, this creature dies because of Brie Larson. She throws a lighter, and because there's methane gas around... But she got the lighter from Tom Hiddleston, I believe. That's his lighter. Ah, yeah, there you go. There you go. He's so essential. (laughs) That's why he's in the movie. Yeah, a man hands her a lighter, and that is his worth. Okay. The humans are in the shadow of Kong, quite literally, but the one that's really standing out is Sam Jackson, because he has a mission. The rest of them are just kind of fumbling around, and yeah, when Tom Hiddleston puts on the gas mask and starts cutting the Muto's legs with a samurai sword, I'm like... What movie is he in? Uh, That was actually, it was, that was a debate. What video game was it referencing? (laughs) There was a lot of people at the studio that said, we don't want this. Why are you doing this? But they tested it with some young audiences. Again, PG-13, they were worried about what this looked like. The kids loved it. And it is, you're right. It's some kind of video game reference. I don't know. And there's just no heroics here. John C. Riley is funny. And he's energetic, and he steals the spotlight whenever he's on the screen. Absolutely. And so I'm watching him, and I forget Brie Larson and Tom Hiddleston or a couple other people are with him. Yeah, again, they should have whittled down this cast. There are still so many people around. Even with John Goodman gone and the guy with the mustache, there are just double digits of people standing around. Yeah, Brooks and Son are still here. I don't know why. Yeah, And again, they want to keep some of these people alive for the peripheral material to expand a monster verse. The idea is that they're not here to die, which seems like a miscalculation. It seems to me like you would want to have a lot more death throughout all of this movie. Even though they've had some exciting parts, the punctuation to an action scene is who lives, who dies. And it's feeling like not enough people are dying to keep momentum going. And who's supposed to even be killing them? Because... Kong is being hunted, but you don't want Kong to constantly be an antagonist. Because I'm assuming in the Kong versus Godzilla film, we don't want to hate Kong. We don't want to root for Godzilla to burn Kong's flesh off. So we want to have Kong be chaotic neutral, I suppose would be the term if we were playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. So we have to have these other monsters around. We've really set up The skull crawlers, as I'll continue the analogy, are chaotic evil. But then you've got the rest of these that are just cameos. You know, it's like, oh, it's a stick tree and it doesn't really go anywhere. And we see one squid. But yet there's constantly action on screen. You know, I'm complaining because of characterization and I'm complaining because the characters aren't given enough to do. Mm -hmm. But when I'm watching it, I'm watching John C. Riley. I'm smiling. I'm watching Sam Jackson. I'm getting his pathos and I'm watching the fights. And they're well-done fights. You know, I really do enjoy seeing Kong kick Mudo ass. Here's what I would argue. The difference between a good movie and a great movie is that you elevate the action. They're not doing that here. Again, if there's a metaphor about the Vietnam War, it's all being carried on the shoulders of Sam Jackson. He's the one that's still trying to fight it. And they're not expanding that and creating what soldiers were going through overseas 
on this island. It doesn't work in that way. So essentially, you just have sort of a running to and fro, noisy, competent, occasionally fun or funny box of toys is kind of what it feels like. Yeah, there's if you want to sink your teeth into something, not a whole lot of, I, I guess I'll stick with the movie for my metaphors, not a whole lot of sushi to bite down into, but I don't know, like gummy worms. If you like gummy worms, like <laughs> I like them sometimes in small amounts, like they're sweet. They give me a sugar high. That's what this is. And that's not a knock against it. It's just a different kind of movie than something that, yeah, wants to be elevated, like you said, Stuart. The thing is, this feels like almost the kind of comic you read, Stuart. This feels like the prequel comic that they'd put out before Godzilla vs. Kong. Mm -hmm. It's a standalone adventure that introduces us to King Kong and might set up a couple of minor characters in the next film. Like you said, these people really old or the children of these people. Yes, Brooks is in the next movie, played by a different older actor. Okay, I was going to say, not the same actor, but it's a standalone adventure that doesn't have... A lot of impact. I mean, the whole point of this is to be an isolated adventure that has a finite beginning, a finite end. And so I'm enjoying what I'm watching, but it feels weightless. I, I'm so glad that it's set when it's set, though, because if they had modernized it and boy, they really wanted to do that and really considered it. I feel like the enjoyment of this is the retro pleasure of the retro pleasure of going back to the 1973 time period and all the things that they can do with that. I feel like if they took that away, this movie would be even more generic to the point that I would be disengaged. Yeah, the the fact that, again, they have the pretensions to try to be saying something about war in Vietnam and Packard will have a line and Conrad will have a line. Like, they all have lines, but it gives it a flavor. Again, it gives it that flavor. It's not weighty. Can't really get a good get full off of this, but it gives it a flavor that sets it apart. Yeah, if this was modern, it would just be generic soldiers. Like, and that seems really boring. Yes, it would not work. Whereas mostly I'm with the movie but not feeling completely compelled by it. Like if the power went out and I didn't see the end, I'd be like, oh, oh well, you know, like, but I was enjoying it. The best thing about the 70s setting, because I feel like we lose a lot of it once we're on the island because you're in almost this timeless setting and there's a lot of military hardware and I don't know enough about machine guns and military helicopters to know which model year is the 74 and which model year is the 2019. But the music, the soundtrack of this, it's a lot of standards, you know, it almost feels like freedom rock level, you know, double disc set. Credence. I mean, anytime you, Credence is a lazy equivalent <laughs> of like, we want to do Vietnam. Credence Clearwater Revival. They impressed me early on because they do a Stooges song and it, it's not 1969. It's not I Want to Be Your Dog. It's not Search and Destroy. It's not like the ones they usually use. There's one off of Funhouse, which... Well, if you do a lot of acid, that apparently is their best album. It's not my favorite, but like, I'm like, oh, they got some deep cuts. And then, yeah, Sabbath with Paranoia. Like, I'm digging these songs. I had no idea that song was that old. I, I looked them up to double check. I did look them up. <laughs> Sabbath to me is late 70s. I didn't realize that they were happening in the early 70s. Yeah, I think it was early 80s that Ozzy broke off and mm. did his own thing. But yeah, once they go to Creedence Clearwater Revival, I'm like, oh, okay, they, I, I guess uh, they don't have any more ideas for deep cuts or, or just better songs. Yeah, 
It telegraphs things we already know about an era that they're glossing over and and playing dress up. But yes, don't have a lot to say. They they what they want to say is that Sam Jackson by beating Kong is winning his Vietnam, and here he is. He has the napalm and he tricks the monkey into walking up to it. Boom! Yay! I've won but only open the door for the big one to rise. And, of course, we get the Mexican standoff. Conrad shows up. They point the guns at the soldiers. Can they convince them to be pacifists? And you get Marlowe trying to tell everyone about the skull crawlers. And the only person who won't listen is Packard, Sam Jackson. Eventually, they get all the other soldiers, not a single of whom I could name one, because even the ones that I knew, like the one writing home to his mother, all died. Cole, I, I picked up the word Cole. And again, I know Shea Wiggum has been in a lot of things that we've covered and just lots of things I've seen. He gets the fake hero's death. He thinks he's going to die here. He, he gets a grenade and is like, I'm going to be the one to be the sacrifice. And you're going to be so glad that I did this. And... Taking out the skull crawler. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I thought this was a good joke. Yeah, the big one comes up, flicks his tail, and his grenade explodes miles away, not hurting <laughs> anyone. Along with him, like he gets thrown up again against the rocks and he's dead yeah that gave me a good laugh i'm i listen if you say the director is focusing on comedy a lot of the comedy is working and mm-hmm. it really kicked in yep. there were jokes the whole way through but when john c Riley showed up i do feel like we're in a very light-hearted action adventure film yes and maybe too light is what I would argue. It's like so light that it almost feels unimportant sometimes. But I'd rather have that than doom and gloom and heavy. You can't make these kaiju movies so serious. And it was fun to see callbacks. It's fun to see when Kong pops up again. Of course, he wasn't dead. That he's going to do that jaw cracking move. But on- he doesn't. I'm disappointed. He does not kill the beast by bending its jaw back. He rips out its innards. He rips out the tongue. No, earlier he cracks the jaw. We think he's dead. Yeah, there is that scene earlier. Yeah, but then they have a whole thing where he like he's using the uh, boat propeller as a chain mail. And yeah, I mean, they got a whole lot of ideas. It's not the finishing move, but the move is in here. It's one of the many moves Kong is doing as he's having fun in his wrestling arena. I do love the fact that when you get a Kong, like at one point he's just going to put those big old rotors from some giant ship like on his hands as boxing gloves and start punching that skull crawler. Like, look, you're hitting the sweet spot with that kind of imagery for me. Yeah. Again, this is why they got this director. He was the one that brought all of those kinds of ideas, their script, their ideas. Again, they went to the writer of Godzilla 2014 and it looked a whole lot more like that before this director got on board. They're better off having all of this youthful exuberance and yeah eventually i guess we have the blonde woman doing something she fires a flare she falls in and she gets eaten by the creature and thus it means kong needs to save her reach in rip rip out the innards yeah i have to believe if she hadn't fired that flare kong would have died at that moment she distracts the beast long enough that kong needed the help kong's been injured he's been cut he's been burned She saved Kong's life. And they had that tender moment earlier. Apparently, Brie Larson can really bring tears on command. And so she cries when she pets Kong's face. Oh, I thought for sure that was CGI. It's so fast. I know. That thing just raced down her face. I was listening to something or reading something, and they're like, well, Brie can really turn on the waterworks. 
She could also do all her own stunts, though. So you never know with Brie. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, is there truth here or not? I don't know. Again, it's a flare gun and not a regular gun. This was a sticking point for her. And I don't know that she needed to be an ass-kicking, you know, machine gun-toting mama. It's fine that she's the photographer. And it's fine that, yeah, the, the real moment is given here at the end for Marlo. It's about Marlo getting out finally and going home. Something they filmed at the last minute. They tested this and realized audiences really love this character. We need to show him actually get all the way home. We need to have this bittersweet 16 millimeter footage. His wife didn't remarry and his son's still living at home and he's got to be what? 30? 29 years yeah, later. Yeah. <laughs> it's a miracle. It's amazing. But it leaves you wondering like, so they know Kong is there. Like what does happen to him? I mean, like, are they comfortable just saying okay this is a scary place with uh, a lot of bad creatures and we don't want to go back i mean 1973 to 2020 i mean it's hard to imagine they just let kong sit yeah no it's quite the opposite when we get the post credit scene like they are actively like like look there's lots of kaijus like you got to figure they went back and try to do something again the prequel sequel comic implies that brooks's son on his own not with Monarch, went there for the first time since humans had gone there in 1995, and it didn't go so well. But he was able to get a package out that went to his father and may play a little tiny air-misted-on bit of plot point in the next movie that we're not covering till November. And the very final thing in this movie is a picture of Godzilla and Mothra, and you hear Godzilla's roar. And yes, this is all part of the monster verse, but are they trying to do a Marvel thing? Is this basically like the Incredible Hulk to Iron Man back in 2008 when they put out both films? It's not a sequel to Godzilla, but it's a parallel movie to Godzilla, and eventually they'll cross over. Well, it's worth pointing out this movie started out in development in 2014 as a universal movie that was never going to fight Godzilla. This was going to be a Peter Jackson prequel thing. And at some point in the development stage, after this director signed on, they got to be under the umbrella of Legendary Pictures and have that. So it wasn't always part of the conception. It was something that when they realized they could do it, they got very excited about. And so, yeah, we'll see if that pays off when they finally fight November 2020, three years beyond this movie. And a year later than it was going to be, right? Yeah, we'll talk about all of that, well, in November. So, Jacob Stewart, would you recommend a vacation on Kong's Skull Island? Jacob. Like I said, when I first saw this, I had a lot of biases. I, I was like, hashtag not my Kong, because my Kong was 1933. It was 2005 with Peter Jackson. Kong was a monster, but also something that you could feel there was some kind of humanity. And I just felt like this was missing. Like, oh, this is just an action film. Whatever. It's fine. But watching it this time, again, I now I have that background that there is a Kaiju Kong. That, that We've seen this kind of Kong where he's, he's just there to fight other monsters and maybe not necessarily have all that humanity. And so watching it this time, I, I had that mindset. I know what I was getting into. And yeah, this is a pretty entertaining action film. It, it's My reference is this is the best Son of Kong movie. Like, the Son of Kong, that was a goofy film that I almost recommended. It, it's kind of funny with the humans and then Son 
son of Kong is just kind of adorable, but he just doesn't fight enough monsters. Like, he only gets that giant bear. Like, that's the only good fight in that one. But, like, this one, yeah, it's got that humor. It's got the good fights. It doesn't have, ironically enough, in a movie about a giant monkey, it doesn't have that humanity that I come to respect in a proper Kong film. But, yeah, this is the action one. It's light, it's fluffy, it's cotton candy, but it's a good time. It's it's a fun action film. It's a fun kaiju film. Watching giant monsters fight, humans fight him, and getting to see all this that destruction. So, yeah, if you just want to have an enjoyable action film, look, Michael Bay couldn't do that with, like, four or five Transformer films. Apparently, it's harder than you think <laughs> to make a good popcorn flick. But, yeah, this is a good one. Recommend. Stewart. Yeah, I have similar feelings. It's not a great King Kong movie. It doesn't really tell the story that we know. But there are plenty of those. Pick one. There's so many. They don't need to do that again. We're in a monsterverse. We're trying to build a whole new cast of characters, and Kong is only one of them. It's an uptick. The surprise here is if, if I'm I'm looking at 2014 Godzilla and 2017 Kong. I think this Kong wins. I actually think I could be rooting for this guy when they fight, which I would never have said about the Japanese Kong versus Godzilla. I was always a Godzilla man, but I like this Kong. I do think that having humor helps and having a director that knows how to riff on a formula screenplay gives enough unique qualities about this. Thank God for John C. Riley being able to provide the love story that is not provided by Brie Larson and Hiddleston. You're really holding that against Brie. Well, I'm holding it against both of them. Why are they in this movie? There's no point for them. (laughs) And props to Sam Jackson, too. He's a credible human foil. Usually when humans try to fight kaiju, I laugh. But he's good enough here. I mean, and that's really my review, is that this is good enough to enjoy and good enough to think that, yes, when... Kong finally fights Godzilla. It should be a pretty good match. And three for three in that this is forgettable fluff and very fun and entertaining to watch. It kept me solidly entertained both times I watched it. And I remember because of that legendary Godzilla film, Legendary the Company, not Legendary as in iconic. No, it was definitely not one of the better Godzilla movies. I kind of went into this dragging my feet. It's why I didn't go see it in theaters. But when I watched it then, I enjoyed it. I saw my letterboxed rating on it. And then I forgot all about it. I couldn't remember anything about it. I was trepidatious coming back in after this Kong retrospective series. I'm like, here we go again. And this changes it up. Like you said, I don't want to see another telling of Kong. Peter Jackson put the nail in that for me. I've seen it every 30 years. Let me wait another, I guess, at least 10 to 15 before you do that again. You didn't see the stage musical, but in every other way you could slice it. (laughs) Been there, done it. Even the cartoon where they sang. Yep. So I like that you take the character of Kong and you do something new with him. You give him a different story, a different adventure. Obviously, you can't tell the normal story because he can't die at the end if you're going to have him fight Godzilla. So I really enjoy this, but I'm probably not going to remember it next week. You know, it's as forgettable as the popcorn you have at the movie, but it's a recommend for sure. And I'll preview my thoughts for when we get to November. It's the best legendary monster movie I've seen. Yeah, there's only three out so far, and we can hope. But I agree. That's what I mean. I'm in Kong camp. I can't believe it, but they converted me to Kong over Godzilla. They haven't been as successful with Godzilla. We'll elaborate on that. The third movie came out last year, Godzilla King of Monsters. 
We're going to cover it right before Godzilla versus King Kong in the middle of November, right before Thanksgiving, assuming they don't punt and move that release date again. We were thinking that that movie was opening in just a few weeks, and we were walking right up to it, but last minute, they pulled the plug, and we just decided, let's have a King Kong retrospective. And I think it's been a surprise. I thought that I didn't like Kong. I thought this was going to be a little painful. I like pretty much every installment but King Kong Lives, even (laughs) Son of Kong. Yeah, but even that one, I mean, it's not quite Brown Arrow, but it's bad in in a... Yes, agreed. I laugh. I have fun. I have some fun. There's no installment that is worthless in the way that most franchises, frankly, have. I mean, if we had reviewed that Mighty Kong, if we had done the Dudley Moore musical, (laughs) that's that one. That one really sucked. And those other animated musicals really sucked. But beyond that, yeah, for what we covered, I really like this retrospective. It's one of the strongest I've ever been on. Yeah, I agree. I, I am surprised with that, especially with that 70s one. Which I'm like, there's no way that one could be good. But yeah, it was kind of entertaining. Like, even though he doesn't fight any dinosaurs, but I haven't recommended them all, but they all have their strengths. Yeah, there's a consistency, which is hard to nail, you know, with, with, with a character that's gone on for 80 some odd years for him to more or less come back and be about as good every time is nailing it. That shows that there's something to this character. And I'm kind of the opposite of you, Stuart, because I thought I was team kong the whole time and coming back and watching them time and again and seeing you know they had their strengths that's for sure but they also all of them had their weaknesses and i'm kind of cooled on kong you know i think i'm ending this series on my favorite film of the whole series yeah and in second place is a tie of the 1933 film and king kong escapes Really? So Kong 76 has fallen in your estimation since you were seven years old. It's one step below those two. King Kong Escapes is so ridiculous fun. And then <laughs> King Kong, the original, is it's got its own character and I liked it. And King Kong versus Godzilla, I was surprised how much I didn't care for it. The Soma Berries and the cigarettes and all of that, that was hilarious. Oh, it had its moments and I recommended it in the end, but it just wasn't the strongest recommend I thought. And then, yeah, Son of Kong, King Kong Lives, that horrible cartoon. It's been a mixed bag for me, but I'm happy to walk out of the jungle and ending on a high note makes me more excited for November. Right. And though we don't have any more King Kong movies for you, we do have a lot of King movies for you. Starting next week, King of Fighters. We're back to video games and a 1994 coin-op that was made for the Neo Geo. Oh, I love Neo Geo games. I've never heard of this game, but apparently it's like a double dragon Mortal Kombat. I mean, I know the drill. A lot of people in funny outfits get together and beat each other up. In this case, it will be Maggie Q, Darth Maul, Ray Park is in it, and the director of John Wick is actually in front of the camera. You know, he's a stuntman. He's going to be one of the guys uh, kicking the shit out of everybody else. Stahelski or the other one? David Leach. Okay, Leach. And so, yeah, King of Fighters... It's a one-off. There won't be sequels. Yay. And beyond that, we got King Crap. Uva Bowl comes back. Oh. In the name of the king, which is actually just their funny way of saying we're making a movie out of Dungeon Siege, a fantasy video game I don't know, but apparently is good, even though these movies couldn't possibly be good. 
again. Uva Bowl, he's coming back. Three films, and I love the, the stair-step decline. First movie, Jason Statham. Oh, that's kind of impressive. <laughs> Second one, Dolph Lundgren. Oh, God. Third one, the bald dude from Prison Break. And not the one that had the tattoo, the other one. Those are the stars of this I, again, I think it's called In the Name of the King because they'd like for you to mistake it for Return of the King. This is Uva Bowl's Lord of the Rings. You know, I haven't used my flamethrower since that one day. <laughs> yeah. Despite all the snow, I haven't used it to clear my driveway. But it sounds like I might be breaking it back out for a U-Bowl trilogy of, you know, we can roast some marshmallows. Fill up the butane tank. Yeah, why did Statham need to do that at the height of his happening? It's just, it's strange. But anyway, if you're not looking forward to that, and I can understand why, we also have real movies coming. New Mutants is really getting released. That horror X-Men movie. I can't believe that. I am shocked. Yeah, we'll be covering that one. And then what looks like one of the most fun franchise films of the year. So excited for the return of James Bond. No Time to Die right after that. Yeah, these are definitely going to be better than you bowl. Meanwhile, if you want to be a March patron and support now playing in a different way, we are covering a listener request. I believe it's his favorite film of 2019. No, it's not Parasite. No, it's no film I'd ever heard before. Dragged across concrete. It, it was on my short list for top 10 for a while. It, it finally dropped down as I more came out. But yeah, it'll be interesting to discuss. Did it come out January 1st? It didn't get much of a release, but then again, it stars Mel Gibson. So there you go. <laughs> hey, Daddy's Home 2 was a big, wide release and made a lot of money. Yeah, but he wasn't playing a racist cop in that one. <laughs> right. And we'll also be starting Spring Donations soon, which means Us, Quiet Place, Bird Box, all films I can't wait to talk about. So hang with us. If Uva Bowl's not your thing, we've definitely got movies you want to hear about coming very soon. So thank you for listening. This has been Now Playing, the eighth wonder of the world. I think he's had enough of what we call civilization. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. It's no use. The show, it's over. It's done. I'm done. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Holy mackerel, what a show. If you enjoyed this show, please tell others. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Word will get out. It always does. Want to hear more reviews like this one? You can find hundreds of other movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Which it on, like this, and you'll get them by matching. In our archives section are over 800 reviews. Listen to our hosts discuss horror, sci-fi, comedy, action, drama, and more. Plus, you can hear reviews of every movie based on Marvel or DC Comics. Why don't those candy asses in New York care about this one? 
a new, totally free movie review podcast is posted every Tuesday. So come back each week for another new show. This island is just the beginning. There's more out there. What do you mean, more? This world never belonged to us. It belonged to them. The question is how long before they take it back. Kong is not the only king. Now playing relies on listener support to keep operating. Do you suppose he knew he was saving my life? Do you suppose he knew he was helping us? Of course not. Do you want me to believe he was grateful? You can support Now Playing by joining our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. Backers can get early access to reviews, unedited reviews, exclusive shows not available anywhere else, and more. Details are at nowplayingpatron.com. I am a realist, and I need you, so I am going to be generous. I will let you go without a bit of trouble and with lots of cash. At our Podbean site, you can also support the show by listening to any of our donation shows. Series like Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Phantasm, Jaws, and others are available for a small, one-time contribution. I'll give you another thousand to leave right now. You haven't given me the first thousand yet. You can also donate to us directly on PayPal. Details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Might as well settle up. You gonna pay me? I'm not gonna stiff a friend. Want 375 more Now Playing reviews? Get the Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Arnie, Stewart, Jacob, and Marjorie reviewed 125 different movies, each getting three recommends, or not recommends. There was still some mystery left in this world, and we could all have a piece of it for the price of an admission ticket. The ebook is available now, and the print book will be shipping soon. Find details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. Well, it better be good after all this bowing. You can also follow Now Playing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube for original video content. She could be hysterical, so come on, follow me. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I'm someone you can trust. I'm a producer. Believe me, I am on the level. No funny business. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Sure, no, I've been a big help. Now Playing is edited by Stephen, Heath, and Arnie. All right, on back! Everybody on back! Everybody on back! Now Playing credits read by Brock. I can't tell when I'm talking or when I'm not talking. You're talking. Am I? Yes. I'm talking? Yes. Your mouth is moving. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. If you feel it, you say it. It's really very simple. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. You can't accuse me. You wasn't there. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. We must not panic. If there is one thing we cannot afford at this time, it is hysteria. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and may not be used without the expressed written permission of, Venganza Media Incorporated. You need to listen to us! We're not at war, Colonel. You're making a mistake. Your lies got my men killed. And you're going to get us all killed.
not our fight. Whose side are you on, Captain? Now playing is the Venganza Media Production, copyright 2020. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Why'd he do that? Climb up there and get himself cornered. The ape must have known what was coming. What does it matter? Airplanes got him. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. Directed by Jordan Vote Rob Vote Roberts. Vote like yeah, voting's real okay. easy. Yeah. Vote like yeah, what we're gonna do in November. Yeah. Jordan Jordan Go Trump Roberts. <laughs> Joe. Jordan, <laughs> Jordan Jordan is the easy part. <laughs> and by the way, are you recording? Because I don't even see the thing going. It is. It's over here. Okay. All right. I just, <laughs> just wanted to check that part, too. Since we were... <laughs> Two of the scientists come in and say Kong isn't the only Mudo on the planet and show pictures of Mothra and Godzilla. And the movie ends. You mean his credits roll? No, I mean, the credits were over by that point. Oh, I mean, that, that's always how you end, though, is so. I don't think I've ever heard you say as the movie ends. 